Welcome to Albemarle. We're going to navigate the high seas of global politics. My name is Peter Schechter, and with me is my co-host, Mooney Jensen. We're going to captain this boat for the next half hour or so, so join us. Today, we're going to take on Iran, a story that has a double narrative, two narratives that are moving in parallel. And at some point, my suspicion is that very soon, they're going to come together. The first narrative is what will be the fate of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was the deal that President Obama signed two years ago between the five UN Security Council members, the European Union, and Iran. And this deal was the essential deal that has fomented all the debate between Democrats and Republicans as to whether the, the deal with Iran was tough enough on Iran over a long period of time. The second narrative that is happening is the narrative that is actually taking over the news in the Middle East. If you could speak Hebrew or Arabic or Farsi, you would see that on the front pages of all the newspapers in the Middle East is a concern with a growing amount of tension that is happening that is has Iran on one side and Saudi Arabia, Israel, the United States, and Egypt on the other side. These two narratives are inevitably going to collide. So we're going to take that on today before they collide, and we have a one fantastic guest to help us do that. Jake Sullivan, a visiting professor from Yale. He was deputy assistant to U.S. President Barack Obama and national security advisor to U.S. Vice President Joe Biden. And most importantly, during that time, he was intimately involved with the Iran negotiations. We're really pleased to have Jake on the show today. Peter, let's start with a little bit of context on the first issue, which is the, what is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which you mentioned, signed by Obama in 2015, and also by the UK, Russia, France, Germany, and China. What it was essentially is, uh, uh, very simply, lifting some of the sanctions that had crippled the Iranian economy in exchange for limiting their enrichment of uranium and uh, reducing the centrifuges and basically eliminating uh, the immediate capabilities of Iran to develop a nuclear we weapon. This was considered by many to be Obama's signature success in foreign, pol in foreign policy and, of course, has been criticized also by Republicans. So the truth is Trump hates it, and he's decided... Uh, that he will not recertify this agreement. And uh, just a little aside, the recertification is not part of the compliance, it's not part of the agreement of the P5 plus 1. It is something that the United States has put into place to try to evaluate and monitor the success of this program. So he has decided that he will not recertify, basically kicked the ball to Congress and called for new sanctions on Iran. Uh, we have to put this into context as well. Trump hates everything that has Obama's signature on it. And we can go back to Obamacare, to anything that smells of the previous administration. Trump wants to destroy it and sometimes just put his brand back on it. So Congress can either demand further concessions or attempt to demand further concessions from Iran or put a cosmetic change that will please Trump and leave the agreement as it is. So I think, Mooney, it's worth just taking a step back and, and, and discussing why people hated this agreement in the first place, or why they thought that this agreement was so r r rife with complications, which is the fundamental fact that this agreement only deals with Iran's nuclear program. 
And this was a decision that the Obama administration made, which was we can either try to take on Iran as an, as an actor in the Middle East, or we can take on Iran and the most important part of Iran that affects the United States, which was their nuclear program. And they decided that, um, that if they were going to try to get the most important thing done, they could only do that by concentrating on that thing alone. And I think that that is, in the end, what a lot of the critics of this, and the main critic being the Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu, who went on you know, your, that famous speech that he gave with a, with, a, with a little drawing, a cartoon drawing of a bomb, um, uh, in which he complained that you can't deal with this unilaterally. You can't deal with only the nuclear program without dealing with Iran's behavior. It's never going to be easy, and I think that this uh, deal was the signature of the Obama pragmatism, who uh, it wasn't the worst deal ever, it was the best deal he could get. And the fact that it was endorsed by so many countries and that are, these countries are still trying to support the deal and keep it alive says a lot about the reach and the implications that it has, even though it's not comprehensive and it doesn't really uh, attack all of the issues surrounding, surrounding Iran and its nuclear program and its human rights record, for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that what, what President Trump has done is, uh, it seems to me, his favorite thing to do, which he does, he did with uh, uh, the Dreamers, which he's done with healthcare, which he's done with taxes, and now he's done on Iran, which is he basically, if he can't resolve the problem himself, and he doesn't want to resolve the problem himself because the resolutions are not resolutions that his base likes, he sends it to Congress. And, you know, I think that the problem here is, what is Congress going to do? Because if Congress can take certain actions that uh, would be exactly, as you said, cosmetic, but a lot of the things that Congress is talking about doing would essentially undo the agreement. And the both the European Union and the Iranians have said that if, for example, a uh, bill passes Congress toughening up sanctions, um, in that case, um, this agreement would cease to exist. I, I'm really, really worried that that's not what we want. Congress has come under immense uh, pressure the past few days from everyone, basically. Uh, the EU, through the foreign policy chief who wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, has tried to make Congress understand the impact on security, the impact on diplomatic relations, and really the the fact that renegotiation is not an option for the EU and the other signatories, how this was a UN Security Council resolution and how it is very, very much covered by uh, the international community. So, Peter, we have the EU, we have nuclear scientists writing letters, we have Boris Johnson flying to Washington to try to talk to Congress, and now we'll listen to German Foreign Minister Sigmar Gabriel, who's been one of the loudest voices warning the U.S. about the trouble it's about to walk into. We in Europa, Deutschland, Frankreich, Großbritannien and the EU, we stand to this agreement with Iran. We in Europe, Germany, France, Great Britain and the EU, we stand by this agreement with Iran and we want to preserve it. At the same time, of course, we condemn Iran's role in other issues. Iran plays a very difficult role in the Middle East, no question about it, and that must be dealt with and discussed frankly and thoroughly. What we can't allow under any circumstances is to extinguish the only signal of hope that we have today to successfully prevent a country from developing nuclear weapons. 
Therefore, in the coming weeks, we will do all in our power to convince the U.S. Congress to uphold the agreement and to talk about how to change Iran's behavior in other political issues in the Middle East. But the agreement itself must be maintained in our view. So essentially what Foreign Minister Sigmar Gabriel of Germany is saying is that don't touch this nuclear deal because the nuclear deal is too important for the world. And there's lots of other fora where we can deal with the bad behavior of Iran. And he, he's very cognizant and very open about how much bad behavior there is. And there is huge amounts of bad behavior. I mean, there is there is financial and armed support for Hezbollah. There is the support of Iran for President Assad in Syria, one of the world's great murderers. There's the harassment of tankers in the Straits of Hormuz uh, that basically power that the, the through which so much oil that powers the world's factories goes through. There's the deliberate fomenting and fanning the flames of the Sunni-Shia divide in the world. There is the human rights violations in Iran, which are just abundant. So there's, there's, it's, nobody is trying to sort of cover the dark clouds of how much uh, other, how many other things there are that need to be dealt with when one deals with Iran. But I think what people are saying is how important it is to maintain this nuclear agreement because all these things that I just listed will only get worse if Iran is also a nuclear power. And need to be addressed separately by the international community. Many have called this the post-ISIS Middle East, and I just wonder if these proxy battles that you mentioned that have been flaring up these days with Lebanon and Yemen are in fact, just proxy battles, or as some conspiracy theorists have started to think, a new reshaping of Iran's role in the Middle East. Well, I think that's the that now we come to the second narrative, Muni, and this is where this is where you know we we can it, the Middle East is always the Middle East, and we peel we can talk about layers of the onions, but there'll always be more onion. You know, I think that over the last couple of days, some amazing things have happened. I mean, there is a missile that was. Uh, seems to have been fired uh, from Yemen that screamed over the Riyadh airport in the last couple of days, something that the Saudi foreign minister recently called a direct act of war from Iran. Then there is this highly unusual situation in which the Lebanese prime minister gets on a plane in Beirut, lands in Riyadh, goes to the crown prince's office and basically tenders his resignation, not to the Lebanese parliament, but to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And he hasn't been back to Lebanon since, and his the reason for tendering his resignation is because he says that he, uh, his job has been made impossible by Iran's actions with through Hezbollah in uh, in Lebanon. So we have all of these things coming together. Not to mention the outright wooing um, of of Iran by both China and Russia in ways that have. Uh, been really impressive. I mean, China that wishes to include Iran in its uh, One Belt, One Road program, Russia, which is looking for all types of deals with the Iranians. Peter, many have called this a new Cold War where Iran and Saudi Arabia are engaged in through third countries in what is a 
currently avoiding direct confrontation, but has uh, kind of divided the region in two. So let's start with trying to define who are the players and where they are on the Iran side. On the Iran side, Mooney, you have uh, basically think of this as you have Iran on one side of the map, and then you have on the other side of the map, you have Syria and Hezbollah in Lebanon. And what's missing in the middle of the map is Iraq. Iraq is the key chessboard on which this game in the Fertile Crescent is being is being played. And Iran is increasingly a powerful, powerful actor uh, in Iraq, which is a Shia-majority country like Iran is, though it is an Arab country and not a Persian country. The other place where this proxy war is being played out on Iran's side is in Yemen, where uh, the Houthis have... Um, uh, pushed hard against the Saudi-backed alliance uh, that is Saudi Arabia and the Emirate countries that have really waged a massive air campaign uh, on Yemen, and yet the Houthis continue to be strong, and Yemen, which has always been divided between North Yemen and South Yemen, is sort of still that way. There is a North Yemen uh, and a South Yemen that's still really hasn't, the map hasn't changed, notwithstanding massive aerial bombardments. So th th that's where it is on Iran's side. And I think that the, the, the interesting question here is, who's lined up against that? So the lineup on the Saudi side includes the U.S., where Jared Kushner was recently in Saudi Arabia. and uh, J Just two days ago, he was there, yeah. And also the United Arab Emirates and Egypt and Israel. So that's the opposite team in what appears to be a growing conflict that is also now benefiting from a vacuum in foreign policy on the part of the United States. And I think the, the, the big question, Mooney, is the question that you asked at the beginning. Is this going to remain a low-grade proxy fight, or is this going to explode out there? And I think one of the things, and here we begin to bring things together, and, and I'd love to soon call on Jake here for his comment, but here is where I think what happens in Congress can begin to really affect what happens on the ground over there. Because if you have a, a situation in which Iran declares a unilateral withdrawal from the deal because Congress has voted on its side a unilateral addition of sanctions, um, we can get a sudden unraveling in which you see a heightened amount of far more direct conflicts between these actors. And when that happens, uh, I think we could get a reshaping of the Middle East, but it's a reshaping of the Middle East that will not be resolved because this is going to be, if Europe thought, fought a 30-year war, I'm afraid in the Middle East you can fight this to a stalemate. I'm a little more optimistic in thinking that some of the more sensible forces in Iran and some of the more sensible forces in the United States will do their best to avoid direct confrontation. It's in no one's interest in the U.S. to start a second uh, potential conflict after North Korea. So I do believe that even if Congress acts and imposes new sanctions on Iran, Europe has already said it will stay the course and Iran might stay the course as well, which of course would put the U.S. in confrontation with its allies in Europe, and I do think that is an unlikely scenario, but the worst scenario I don't think is going to happen, which is that Iran walks away and this entire confrontation takes on different levels. 
Jake Sullivan knows the Iranians well. He met them innumerable times. He's argued with them. He's fought with them, negotiated, and I'm sure he's had a lot of teas with them. Few people are as well-versed on Iran's intentions, Iran's motives, Iran's fears. In November 2013, the Associated Press reported that officials in the Obama administration had been in secret contact with Iranian officials over the feasibility of an agreement to solve the Iran conundrum. This report stated that American officials, including Jake Sullivan, had secretly met with their Iranian counterparts in Oman, and these efforts paved the way for the Geneva Interim Agreement on the Iran nuclear program. Since then, Sullivan regularly attended bilateral consultations with Iran in Geneva as a member of the U.S. delegation on the Iran nuclear negotiations. In addition to his position on President Obama's National Security Council, and as the National Security Advisor to Vice President Joe Biden, Jake previously served as Director of Policy Planning at the U.S. Department of State. Jake, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Jake, there is a lot of action coming out of Washington on Iran. There is action coming out of the Middle East. What do you think Donald Trump is trying to achieve by promising to reject the Iran deal? I don't think Donald Trump knows exactly what he's trying to achieve, which is why we're in this kind of strange position we're in, where he's decertified the deal, but then pretty much asked Congress to take the reins on our policy towards Iran. Um, basically, for him, this is fulfilling a campaign promise. He walked around for two years saying he thought this was the worst deal ever negotiated and that he was going to rip it up. And so now nearly one year into his presidency, I think he looked around and said, well, why, why haven't I ripped it up yet? And uh, when his team explained to him that, in fact, walking away from the deal would be a strategic disaster for the United States, he said, well, at least let me decertify, and then we can deal with the rest later. And, and I think that's basically the circumstance we're in right now. Do you think that that's all he wants is to decertify and he wants this thing just to sort of somehow disappear and go away? I, I take him at his word when he says he'd like to quote unquote fix the deal. Um, I think what he's talking about with respect to quote unquote fixing the deal is not very credible, but I do think he believes there are shortcomings that he'd like to address. If you asked him what those were, you pushed him on that, I don't think he'd have any idea what the actual specifics behind that are. But fundamentally, I don't think that he wants to take the decisive step of actually canceling the deal and reimposing the sanctions. If he did, he could. He has every right to do that. Uh, the president has the power to remove the waivers and to reimpose all of the sanctions that were lifted under the deal. He's chosen not to do that. And I think that's probably the best indication that what he'd prefer to do is be able to say to his base, I decertified this thing, but then not actually bear the consequences of fully walking away. The problem is that when you create an unstable foundation for a deal by doing something like that, you create a very real risk that this will fall apart over time for a combination of intended and unintended reasons. And I think that that is why all of us should be very worried about what he's done, because even though I don't think today he's planning to walk away from it, he's putting this deal on a very uncertain path that could end up leading to its collapse. So, I mean, President Trump has complained that the deal wasn't tough enough, and a lot of Republicans have said that over time. When you were flying to Oman and meeting with the Iranian negotiators, give us a sense, how hard did you push on the non-nuclear issues? And in hindsight, do you think you could have gotten more out of them? 
On the non-nuclear issues, uh, we, in fact, consciously chose not to make them a part of the negotiation. We put them off to one side for two reasons. The first reason is because we didn't want to negotiate with the Iranians on the future of the Middle East without consulting with our partners, without having them being a part of that conversation. And so to sit down and say, how th should things work out in Syria and Iraq in a bilateral U.S.-Iran channel didn't make sense. Secondly, we didn't want to be trading off nuclear concessions for, say, Iran's support for Hezbollah. Those two things should not, one, be traded for the other. These issues have to be dealt with separately. And what the nuclear deal does is it preserves fully America's right and capability to bring every tool we need to bring to bear to deal with the regional issues. We preserved consciously in the deal the right to impose sanctions, to work with our partners, and to take other actions to push back on Iran. So when Republicans say the deal doesn't cover all the regional activities, I say, yes, that's correct. It was never intended to. And in fact, the, the fact that it doesn't cover those nuclear issues gives us all of the same elements of a strategy and all of the same rights and, and capabilities to be able to take on those regional issues that existed before. Is that what you meant last month when you said in the House Foreign Affairs Committee that the Trump administration had taken its eye off the ball of a broader Iranian threat? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is today, as we speak, the British foreign minister is in Washington, Boris Johnson. Uh, and he's here to talk to Congress about the Iran nuclear deal. He's not here to talk to them about Hezbollah or uh, Syria or the other threats that Iran poses in the region. Why not? Because Donald Trump has made all of our Iran policy ab ab about this will he or won't he, are we in or are we out, this game playing with the deal. And that means that the United States is not focused on what we should be focused on, which is committing to and implementing and enforcing the deal, and then talking to our partners both in the region and in Europe about how we can work together on the broader threat that Iran poses. The fact that all we're doing is talking about the nuclear deal goes to show you that this administration has misplaced its priorities. The nuclear deal is working, we should commit to it, and we should be using our energy, our diplomatic energy, and our strategic energy in the region to focus on these other issues. Jake, let me ask you the the let me ask you the it does seem that the like the Trump administration is increasingly siding with Saudi Arabia and Israel and taking a harder line against Iran in the region. I, I mean, I don't know how to ask this question in any more diplomatic. Are we heading for a broader war in the Middle East? I've been worried for some time now that uh, with all the focus on the possibility of war in Northeast Asia uh, with North Korea, we haven't paid enough attention to what has been, I think, a pretty serious risk of conflict with Iran, whether it starts intentionally because one of our partners in the region decides to do something or it starts unintentionally because the U.S. and Iran end up in a skirmish in the Gulf or uh, our, our proxy forces and theirs come in close proximity in Iraq or Syria. Uh, so I do think that there's a very real possibility that we end up in a conflict and that we need to be sober and serious-minded about how we effectively push back on Iran in the region without triggering a broader war that I think would be a disaster for us and for our partners. That being said, I'm more skeptical that the U.S. is actually pursuing an effective strategy to counter Iran in the region. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of rhetoric, but in terms of action, 
whether you're talking about in Syria or in Kurdistan uh, or elsewhere in the region, it's hard for me to see where the administration is actually following through in a meaningful way. And what's been striking to me is that for all of the criticism that the Trump administration leveled against the Obama administration, they are largely following the Obama strategy vis-a-vis ISIS, vis-a-vis Iraq, and vis-a-vis Syria. And those are some of the main theaters of competition between U.S. allies and Iran. Uh, And so far, we have not seen the Trump administration take a decisively different approach. But it does seem that the Saudis in particular really are seeking to ratchet up the level of tension in the Gulf. So I think the Saudis are doing two things right now that it's it's hard to divine exactly where they want to take it. One is creating uh, a destabilized environment in Lebanon, uh, and there the possibility of conflict, particularly between uh, Israel and Hezbollah, has to be rising, uh, but also the possibility of a proxy fight between the Saudi supported elements in Lebanon and the Iranian supported elements in Lebanon is rising. And then the second is in Yemen, where the Saudis and Emiratis have been embarked on now a two-year campaign against the Houthis, who get some backing from Iran. Um, The possibility that either or both of these end up spiraling into some larger conflict or conflagration with Iran, very real. And I guess the point I'm making about U.S. strategy and U.S. policy right now is that in a way we're being totally passive. We're not stepping up to effectively manage uh, either our relationships with our partners or the threat Iran poses in a way where we can help at once achieve our objectives but also reduce the possibility that war happens. When the U.S. engages in passivity, Iran takes advantage, but also the chance that things spiral out of control and a war results that we get pulled into go up dramatically. And I think that's the circumstance we're facing right now. So this is turning into a pretty pessimistic podcast, Jake. And we've talked about worsening relations in the Mideast, uh, worsening relations within the United States, polarized relationships in Congress with the Democrats. Is there any optimistic scenario, any way this could turn out to be a positive outcome? Well, I'll say a couple of things. First, I have been impressed that our military, our diplomatic, and our intelligence community have all basically doubled down on the strategy Obama started to defeat ISIS. And the fall of Raqqa and the fall of the remaining towns in Iraq that ISIS was holding is something that we should not just gloss over. That is a real meaningful uh, set of... uh, forward uh, steps forward in the region that will enable us to reduce the threat from jihadist terrorism. It is not pure victory, but it's a real thing, and, and we should build on that. So that's one. The second thing I would say is that the way that Trump has conducted himself generally has created, I think, a greater recommitment by the Democratic Party, but also by responsible elements of the Republican Party to certain core principles of American leadership about our alliances, about our values, about our role in the world. And I actually think that we were drifting some. uh, And Trump, in a way, I think, has created an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves to a principled, effective, uh, strong, sensible foreign policy. And I think over the long term, that will be a good thing for the United States. Thank you, Jake Sullivan, for being on Altamar. Thanks for having me.
Now, Peter, we'll go to our uh, now typical predictions. As far as what will go down in Congress, what do you believe? Do you think Congress is going to uh, succumb to the international and national pressure and just basically let this uh, Iranian agreement go through, or will it impose new sanctions? My guess is that we all have to take a look at the tax bill, because if President Trump, because the tax bill has the same timing as the Iran Iran issue in Congress, and if President Trump is successful with taxes, he's not going to want to contaminate the tax issue with Iran. If President Trump is not successful with taxes, I think we have to worry about the Iran issue and him trying to find another way out to please his base. I think he certainly believes that taxes are his most important assignment, but if that's not going to happen, he's going to be looking for something to please his base. And I think that we should all be careful about him suddenly putting more pressure on Congress to do um, to take more radical steps uh, on Iran. I think he is pretty weak politically and also weaker in Congress than he was a few weeks ago, and I believe that this will go... Uh, through with just minor cosmetic changes and nothing substantial, nothing that will alter the geopolitical world. Now, as far as the Middle East, you've mentioned this is a proxy war that can go further. Can we maybe venture a couple of predictions on that front? Well, I certainly predict that just like uh, in in the United States, domestic matters are going to be really the preeminent issue in both Israel and in Saudi Arabia. Uh, In Israel, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is under a really serious uh, corruption investigation which has ensnared his wife and his top advisors. And if you sort of add to that the fact that sort of the Mossad, most of the Israeli Defense Forces top brass uh, are, are really do not want to get into a fight with, uh, with Iran, I think that the chances, uh, as time goes on, the chances w- are going to wind down that Israel becomes a stronger and stronger voice for conflict. I don't think that's the case with Saudi Arabia. I think um, in Saudi Arabia, I I think the young prince has opened up a number of battlefronts domestically, and I think he sees the potential to divert attention from those domestic battlefronts by taking on a much tougher line against Iran. So I think we should look at Saudi Arabia as being um, the, um, the, the entity that really incentivizes uh, a more, much more open uh, conflict with Iran. I disagree, Peter. I think the rhetoric of this young prince is different from the foreign policy stance that he might take. There's been uh, appointment of two new Saudi ambassadors in in exactly in Iraq and Lebanon, which are two hot spots. And I believe that aside from diverting attention to the tremendous corruption ring that uh, he's having to face right now, it might not go any further. Well, we shall see in the coming weeks and months. And that's it for Altamar today. Thanks all for joining. Please go online, um, give us your comments, tell us what you think. We look forward to seeing you next time.